Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Our scripture this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. It's right in front of 2 Peter, um, written by Apostle Peter. Time during Nero was emperor. Persecution was rampant of the Christians. Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves on the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You may be seated. Sure we don't want to preach. (laughs) Okay. God is good all the time. That song that Derek led was the song that they sang as I stood at Taylor Christian Camp uh, on the side of of, uh, right by the creek that I was to be baptized in. So anytime I hear that song, it always takes me back to that day. School begins this week. You excited? All right. (laughs) That says it all. Well, to the teachers and those that are staff, I just want to give you a word of encouragement. The word of encouragement is this. Your classroom may be the safest place for some of the kids you'll have. Your face may be the brightest that they'll see. And the kind words that you say may be the only source of encouragement that they receive. So you have an opportunity to be a blessing. And when you're a blessing to someone, you wind up being blessed in return. So regard your classroom as your mission field to do the Lord's work, to do good, and to encourage those kids. I know you're going to have some problem children that, you know, it's going to be hard to maintain that perspective. Um, pray for them because you don't know what kind of home life they have. Maybe there's something going on that causes them to act out the way that they do. But to the students, I hope you have a good academic year. Be kind to one another. If you see a kid being picked on, befriend him or her. Don't be the mean girls or the mean guys where you're in a nice little huddle and you exclude everybody else. Show that you belong to Christ by how you treat others. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are parts of the Bible that I find a little, a little humorous. For example, Numbers 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And I think to myself, I don't think Moses might have written that particular verse. Maybe a prophet of a later time inserted that because to write that you're the humblest on the face of the earth kind of defeats the purpose of humility. There's also Matthew 23, verse 12, where Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Every one of us, at some point, we struggle with our egos. Sometimes we're a little prideful, sometimes we're a little boastful, and sometimes we are not humble, though we need to be. And being humble is what's needed. If, if We are Christians. Those of us that are, we have already humbled ourselves in the sight of the Lord because we we have realized that 
we sin, that there's no remedy for this sin other than the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so we've obeyed the gospel. We have humbled ourselves to God and received the salvation that he gives. But after that, sometimes we may not remain as humble as we should. Andrew Murray defines humility this way. He says, humility is perfect quietness of heart. As for me to have no trouble, never to be fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointed. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It's to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I'm blamed or despised. It's to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and be at peace as in the deep sea of calmness when all around is trouble. It's the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ's redemptive work on Calvary's cross manifested in those of His own who are definitely subject to the Holy Spirit. That's a very in-depth definition, and if that is in case the definition, I observe several points where I fall short. But our world today and our society is about elevating self, about speaking your truth and making sure that, that you were out front and regarded as important, as important. People's sexuality, their gender identity, their stances on topics that sometimes parade as compassion, the need to always be right, the need to seek admiration, and so on. And those of us that are on social media are even more prone to that because that is our platform where we get to talk about us. And, you know, uh, there for the longest time when the girls would take the selfies, they'd make the duck face. Y'all remember that trend? Yeah. And those of us who didn't take the selfies making the duck face, we'd kind of chuckle at the duck face. I don't know what they do now, but anyway. Studies have actually shown that there's an increased risk of anxiety and depression for those who spend a great amount of time on social media. But in our haughty world, how can we become or stay humble? Peter gives us a few suggestions that we'll look at here in 1 Peter chapter 5. First of all, he says to our shepherd, shepherd as God wills. Let's read verses 1 through 4. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. Now, depending on the translation that you have, some of your Bibles in verse 2 may say, not by compulsion, but willingly. And others may say, not by compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do it. Uh, the New King James and the King James translate from a much later version of the New Testament than some modern translations. But God, to our shepherds, doesn't want you to feel as if, as if this is compulsory. Paul said, if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. So how do you, our shepherds, view this? Do you view this as compulsion, as if you've been conscripted? Or do you view it as a reward? This is what you're to mind. If people aren't among you, how can you pastor them? 
Not pester, pastor. I want to make sure that was clear. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You can't shepherd a flock that is elsewhere. You can't shepherd a person that doesn't want to be shepherded. But I want you to notice also, you have the word elder. Verse 1, you have the word shepherd in verse 2. And at the, about midway of verse 2, you have serving as overseers. Now, there are three words that are used interchangeably of this position. We typically call uh, these men our elders. Uh, that's one of those terms. Uh, presbyteros is the Greek term. We get our English word Presbyterian from that. Presbyteros elders. Uh, uh, shepherd is poimen. You could translate shepherd as pastor, which is a very prominent term these days. So shepherd and pastor are the same things. Overseers is from the word episkopos. You hear the word episcopalian in there. Uh, it's translated as overseer or bishop is a more antiquated translation. So these three terms are used interchangeably of this one role within the church. So people, I think unknowingly, refer to me as a pastor. I am not a pastor. Uh, I'm a minister, a servant. Actually, the word used of Timothy uh, is the same word translated as deacon. It can be translated as minister or servant as well. So I, I know some folks only know what they know, but I am not a pastor. Uh, I may have duties along those lines, but I, you know, people go, pastor, somebody called me reverend the other day. I thought, wow, I got a promotion. Didn't even know it. So, not that you cared about that, but anyway, I, I thought I would point that out, that those words are used of the shepherds of the church, and the deacons and ministers are in a totally, totally different class. Um, I had somebody ask me one time and say, what should I call you? I said, uh, what do you mean? Well, what's your title? I said, I really don't have a title. What do they call you at church? Said, oh, oh, Stephen? To my face, I don't know what they call me behind my back. But Stephen, they're like, you mean you don't have a, one of those titles? I was like, no. So you're not, you're not the reverend? I said, if they gave me a title, I would be the unholy irreverend probably because I'm just a, a sinner saved by grace. But these shepherds, they're, they're not to lord it over the congregation, but rather they're, they're to set an example. And this is in keeping with what Jesus told his disciples. He called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So when the shepherds shepherd, they do so, not as lords dictating and ordering about, but rather giving an example by how they conduct themselves and how they live. So first of all, shepherd as God would have you. Secondly, verse 5, be submissive. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I believe at this point we've left the role of elder technically and we're talking about the different age groups the 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 elders 
within the congregation and those that may be younger, but also there's, there's this uh, idea of, of mutual submission. Now, in many cultures, elders are revered. That is, people that are our elders, not the role within the church, but those that are older than us. Uh, I know in Choctaw society, during the pandemic, many, many Choctaw elders passed away, and when an elder of a tribe passes away, it's almost like you've lost an encyclopedia of knowledge. And that's because, you know, tradition and culture, due to various factors, has been diluted. And so we would look to our elders uh, as, how do you say this? What do you do with this particular thing? I was talking to one uh, elder uh, last year. Uh, her name is Sally. She's about the same age as my grandmother. And we were talking, and <clears throat> I was talking about the, the marriage custom of our people. And what it was, when a young man wanted to marry a young woman, he would throw a pebble at her feet at a social function. If she wanted to accept, she would pick it up and return to him. If not, literally, she ran off. Talk about a blow to your ego. Those of you that have seen the video of, of John proposing to Bree, when you first see it, it looks like he threw the ring at her, but it wasn't a ring, it was a pebble, but it just broke. So I thought that was sweet of him to do. Uh, but anyway, so I was talking about marriage customs, and I said, and then this is how it's done. She said, well, when I was a little girl, we would do it this way and that way, you know, as opposed to that. And so we talked about things, and, you know, there are different things that have changed throughout time. And let me just say this. I think it would be a huge benefit to our youth to have an elder join the class, not, not the technical position, but someone who's older. When we were at New Concord, um, we went and were invited to have supper with Lucy Finney. I don't know if any of y'all know Miss Lucy or not, but she was in her, I think, her late 80s or 90s then. Now, here's a funny story. When I, I hadn't been at New Concord very long, and I have horrible allergies. And so one night I took a dose of NyQuil. I'm thinking, that'll kick all this. I'll sleep well. And, you know, it was a Saturday night, and the phone was ringing about midnight. And so Stephanie was like, hey, hey, hey. You know, and I'm, hello, it was W.T. Patterson. He said, Miss Lucy has fallen, and I need help getting her up. And so I, she was just right around the corner from the church. So I got in my car, and I went over there. And she was sitting on the floor just laughing that she fell. And I walk in, I said, Miss Lucy, if you wanted to visit, all you had to do was ask. And she laughed even harder. So anyway, we got her up. And um, then when I was about to pull out to go back to the church, there was a sheriff's deputy right in the middle of this side. And I thought, I have had NyQuil. Play it straight. If he pulls me over, I, I was afraid I'd go to jail. Anyway. It, it, I guess it was funnier living it than how you're hearing it. But we went over to uh, Miss Lucy's, uh, Stephanie and I and Bree and Cole. And let me tell you something. Nobody cooks like, like older ladies. Uh, my wife's a good cook, I'm, but boy, it's just something different. I, they add a, a sprinkle of love. But anyway, so we were asking her about how she grew up. And she grew up... You know, they would go to a social every so often and they would get in the buggy and the horse would take them there. And she told us, she said, yeah, more or less, I married just to get off the farm. 
How, uh, how long were you married? And I forget, it was many, many years. But I think it's good for our kids to hear those things. We're spoiled. And some of the older generations have been through things that when you hear them, it'll really make you appreciate what you have. But we should be submissive to those who are our elders because of the wisdom they have, because of the counsel and the guidance they can provide. But also we should be mutually submissive to one another. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verses 6 and 7, give God your anxieties. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care or anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. Now, I've often wondered when you have two teams that are facing each other and they're in the locker room and both teams pray for victory, I'm thinking, which one do you, do you think God's even listening to that? Do you think that's something that he even concerns himself with? Uh, and sometimes we look at and we go, well, I don't, I don't know if I should pray about that. Or not. Well, God cares about what bothers you. Cast your cares upon him because, Peter writes, he cares for you. Your anxieties, your worries, the thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night, the thing that you may be facing, the thing that you may not know and you're waiting to hear about. God cares. And a lot of times we think that he may not, or we may think it's trivial, or we may think we shouldn't bother him with it. But you have a God that not only loves you to the point that he would send his son to die for you, but you have a God who, after you have been saved, and you live the life between the point of salvation until we get to join him in the heavens, he still cares. And he will always care. One of the interesting things, the word casting is only ever used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Luke when Jesus makes his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. So if you look at it in those terms, when you give your care to God, it's like you're taking off a garment and you're putting it on him. But often we like to take it back and say, well, I think I'll wear it a little bit longer. Or maybe we keep one arm in the sleeve and we say, okay, I, I, I'll work with it this much. But here casting your care upon him. You give it fully to him, just like those who took off their cloaks and put it on the colt for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. Let God fully have it. Especially you get to a point and there's nothing more you can do with it. Let him have it. And you can pray about that too. God, I know there's nothing I can do with this, but there are things that you can do. You think about people that are in your life that may struggle, say, with addiction or may struggle with, say, sin and something that you've tried to talk to them about, but they can't see it. And so you keep thinking, because that's what we're naturally wired to do. I got to fix it. I got to fix it. But there's some things you and I can't fix. But we can definitely give it to God. And we can pray for God to somehow intervene, to work in that person's life in a way that they can find deliverance. Finally, Peter says, watch out. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, I, I love watching some of those nature shows, you know, the ones with the hyenas, the lions, the elephants. And I saw one the other day where this rhinoceros and this elephant were facing off. And I'm thinking, boy, that rhinoceros has not humbled himself because you look at the size of that elephant. And so they charge and go at it with one swoop, that elephant just rolled him up like a sack of potatoes. But you know, when you watch when the lions are, are, are chasing, who do they always go for? They go for the weak. They go for the sick, the young. When you look at yourself as a Christian and you examine yourself, are you a strong Christian? Or are you a nominal Christian? You're a Christian when it's convenient. Other times it's like, that's eh, something you take off. If you are sick spiritually, if you are weak spiritually, if you are young spiritually, you may be pray for the devil. But not just that, even those of us who would consider ourselves strong. I tell you, he's been working at tempting people for thousands of years, so he knows a thing or two. Stephanie, years ago, uh, I think... It, I had graduated high school, and she was in the summer between her junior and senior year. I was in Biloxi, Mississippi with my family. We were doing a mission, and young Stephanie at midnight decided she wanted something from the grocery, so she went to Kroger around midnight. I don't know. It's 24-hour, wasn't it, Steph? They stayed open 24 hours. So she's walking out, and as she gets close to her mother's van... She shoved up against the van. Somebody was attacking her. We don't know what his aim was, to rob, to rape, to abduct, but she fought back. Because when we got back into town, I didn't know this, when we got back into town, you know, first place we stop is to see Stephanie. And she walks out, she's got this uh, neck thing on. And I'm like, what has happened to you? FBI statistics show that when a woman or anyone is attacked, if they fight back, more often than not, the assailant will flee. They want someone who's going to freeze. So when you think about it, when the devil is on you and you resist him, there's a greater chance that he'll flee as a result. Peter concludes his letter, but may the grace, excuse me, may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Since the beginning of recorded history, the world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. In a study years ago, a periodical discovered that 3,530 years of recorded history were periods of war and only 286 years saw peace. During those times, more, there were over 8,000 peace treaties that had been made and that were broken. A lot of times, making peace is seen as weakness. 
But a Gallup poll from a few years ago showed that six out of 10 Americans favored presidents meeting with United States enemies. I mean, Roosevelt and Churchill met with Stalin, Kennedy met with Khrushchev, uh, Nixon visited Mao Zedong, Reagan met with Gorbachev, Bush Jr. with Putin, Obama with Castro, Trump with Kim Jong-un. Peace was sometimes made, and however long or short it lasts, it's imperfect because of the changing administrations and time. God made a peace treaty with us through His Son. And God's aim is that in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. In Romans chapter 5, we are spoken of as enemies, hostile to God, prone to God's wrath. But after the cross, we're described as justified, as reconciled. So which side of the cross are you on? Are you on the before of the cross to where you've not obeyed the gospel and you're still in hostility with God? Now you may think, well, I'm a good person. I know the Lord. I love the Lord. But it doesn't matter how good you are. If you and I could be good enough, Jesus would have never had to die. But he had to die because we can't be good enough. And so God makes this peace treaty never to break it, but we have to come to the table and we have to accept the terms. And when we do, there will be those on the outside who may not like it, just as in Peter's day, and they may turn their hostility towards us. This is what these Christians dealt with. They had peace with God, but they had turmoil in life. But they were looking for the time when they would have eternal peace and not have to deal with any of this mess. You watch the news enough, you'll be depressed. You listen to the headlines, you'll be afraid. It seems like almost we're on the brink of World War III and nuclear this and that has been carelessly tossed about by world leaders. But you know beyond all that, if we have peace with God, whatever happens, you and I both know that where we're going, we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. I want to invite you to consider very, very thoughtfully those that haven't obeyed the gospel to do so. Don't pack up just yet. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, be willing to make that confession. Turn away from your sins, turning to the Lord. Be buried with Him in baptism. And the Bible says your sins will be washed away. You'll come out of that water a new being. Now you're still going to look the same. But spiritually, you'll be born again. And now you will live as a member of the family of God and as a child of God. Someone once said to me, and I thought it was the greatest observation, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He just has children. If you've obeyed that gospel and you've not been true to the Lord and you want His forgiveness, you also can come forward if you wish to. But if any are wanting to, to put on Christ in baptism, to have prayers for them, you can come to the front as we stand and as we sing.